Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 29th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eron. I don't know about you, Katrina, but I'm excited for National Fishing and Boating Week that's going to be starting up this coming weekend. For that, we're going to be talking about one of America's most ubiquitous sport fishes, the bluegill. So our guests are Sam Stuckel and Alex McCrickard. Alex is the Aquatic Education Coordinator with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. And Sam is a fisheries biologist at our Gavin's Point National Fish Hatchery in South Dakota. And he also takes amazing underwater photographs of fish. So welcome, you two. Thanks for having us on. Yes, very happy to be here talking about the fish that got me started. Ah, awesome. You see, that that's exactly it. Katrina and I have been wanting to do this for a while. And of course, anytime's a good time to talk about bluegill. It is such an awesome sport fish, so common, very easy to catch. And the reason why we're pairing it up with National Fishing and Boating Week is because a lot of states, they'll have a free fishing weekend or day sometime during the year. The first one's going to be paired with this National Fishing and Boating Week. There's other ones that come around 4th of July, Memorial Day, things like that. But we wanted to let people know to to just start looking out for times where if you wanted to get into fishing but don't want to pay for a license, you can get out and you can fish for free sometime soon in your state. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. For us here in Virginia, it's always the first weekend in June. But yeah, bluegill, excellent fish to introduce someone to the sport of fishing with. But I always tell folks, when you buy a fishing license, that goes directly back to us and goes into the management of that resource for your benefit. So it really kind of comes full circle. And that's one of the best things about Free Fishing Day weekend. It's a great chance for someone to get out and try fishing for the first time. You may have never fished before. You can get out and give it a shot without having to buy a license. And if you decide that, hey, I might be interested in coming back out and fishing with friends and family in the future, know that when you do buy that license, that's coming directly back into the management of the resource. So, How much does an in-state license in Virginia cost for a typical adult? Yeah. If you are a Virginia resident, it's $23 for an entire year. It's your annual freshwater fishing license. So I always say, hey, if you go to a movie and you buy a popcorn and a a drink and you've got a two-hour movie, you might be spending 20 bucks and change, something (laughs) like that. When you get two hours of entertainment, $23 give you 365 days of potential entertainment opportunities. So Yeah. And man, it is fun fishing. It really is a great way to spend time outside and Good way to unwind. curious about nature and man, it's just, it's a great way, especially for kids. It's a great thing to do with them. I think a lot of us, if we look back at how we got started fishing, some of my first memories of being out on the water are small lake and palm with my father and, you know, basically a Zebco 33 closed face reel, little six and a half, seven foot rod, mm-hmm. bobber, probably a size eight bait holder hook and a little red wiggler learning how to catch fish and watching that bobber. It's still fun. Mm, that's cool. And Sam, you said this fish got you started as well, too. Can you speak to that just a little bit? That sounded very familiar. The things Alex mentioned, mm-hmm. right down to the type of hook and a little split shot weight put in the wrong place and mm-hmm. digging up worms in the garden, just as do it yourself as you can. That is literally how I started. And I fell in love with it so much. I became obsessed as like a middle school age kid. And it led me to this career, undoubtedly. And it started with those red and white bobbers and this (laughs) colorful, little, strong little fish. 
Okay, so you've got kids. We know attention span can get distracted pretty quickly. What are some tips for kids specifically fishing these fish? Katrina, great question. I myself have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and it's all about quick little sessions. And that's one of the most advantageous things about the bluegill is that unlike some of the other fishing that you do where you're trying to do a float trip and you've got a plan a put in and a takeout and a shuttle and a boat and a full day of fishing. Bluegill are so easy that you can go out. And if you've got 15, 20 minutes, they're usually willing to be your friend in that regard. And one of the good things about bluegill is that the action can be fast and furious and it's not too complex. And one of the things with taking kids fishing is you really want to have increased chances of success and you want to have it happen quickly. And the bluegill really fit both of those criteria And one of the things, you don't have to cast very far either. A lot of times, if you've got a small pond or a lake with bank access and the fish are up in the shallows, that can work really well with just a short little cast. Or if you've got a lake that's got a pier or a dock, a lot of times you can walk out to the dock and you don't even have to cast at all. You can have your kids literally just drop a bobber and a worm directly vertically underneath them off of a bridge piling. And these fish are structure-oriented. They're looking for that shade, especially in the late spring, summer months. And you can usually get some action just right off the docks. Yep. Watch that, Bobber. Bring snacks. I think that part is critical for advice for parents with young kids going fishing. I have a seven and a nine-year-old. And don't go out there with expectations of this being an adult-like fishing trip. (laughs) We're going to get serious about catching fish. No matter what, that's a recipe for failure. Do exactly that. I like to bring a little bait net or a butterfly net, a magnifying glass or something like that. You want this whole trip to be fun for them. So when they think of the fishing, they think of this whole fun experience, not dad was mad because I kept hooking him in the ear or (laughs) missing fish, whatever it is. I usually bring bubbles and chalk. Oh, man. Who can draw the best bluegill? Who can draw the best bluegill? Yeah. We have an urban fishing program up here in Anchorage that we run. And I would say parents wear your sunglasses if kids are casting and make <laughs> oh. sure to teach them to look behind them when they're casting and seeing what's behind them. But yeah, watch your yeah. eyes and your other parts. Especially when you're introducing new people to the sport of fishing, whether it's kids or adults, pinch the barb on those hooks. It'll come out easier. Having a good pair of needle nose pliers or hemis has done. One for pinching barbs is great, but also we were talking about how small the mouths are on these fish. Mm-hmm. It's easy, yeah. especially if you're fishing with bait, for these fish to take the hook really kind of deep in their mouth that's hard to get with just your fingers. fingers. So having that for hook extraction is also good too. Yep. And I think kind of, yeah, just being proactive and teaching kids at an early age, just safety with fishing equipment and respecting the rod tip and not putting it into the ground and things like that. Those are all helpful tips for long-term gear and safety. Absolutely. Lax, you're in Virginia and Sam, you're all the way up in South Dakota. So, I mean, how widespread are these fish in terms of where they're found naturally, I guess? You could go way beyond nationally with bluegill. They have spread around the world as far away as South Africa, Japan, their problem in Australia. We're native kind of to the Mississippi drainage and a little bit east, but very adaptable generalist fish that can live about anywhere from brackish estuary type places in the Chesapeake Bay to farm ponds in South Dakota to higher elevation lakes out west. They're everywhere. That's why they are kind of known as the gateway fish for so many people, Mm -hmm. at least in the United States. We've got them everywhere, whether we want them or not sometimes, but certainly ubiquitous. 
here in Virginia, they're only native to the far southwest portion of the state in the upper portions of the Tennessee drainage, but we've got them statewide. Very adaptable, and we get them in creeks and rivers too. So even moving water above and below the fall line, tidal, non-tidal, which makes them so accessible to so many different people, which is, again, we keep using that word ubiquitous, but it's pretty fitting. Well, what word do you use to describe big fish from this genus? There's a couple good ones out there. I like slab. Yeah, we all let Sam go. I see he's ready to talk. <laughs> I just, I've always gone with the slab. I don't know. that There should be a big bull bluegill or something like that, I've heard. <laughs> Those males get that big snub nose, kind of look like a bull, and they're so colorful. Yeah, they get almost like a fat forehead on top of their head. I've seen some that look awesome. When they get big, it's weird. Their mouth just gets flattened into their face. Because <laughs> when they're young, they're kind of more fish-shaped. They're still compressiform, but they're at least tapered. Then their face just doesn't grow with the rest of their body. And almost get they got like the Cro-Magnon brow hanging over their mouth and their eyes. So I'm going to put on my best Katrina impression. Ah, (laughs) I was going to do it, but go ahead. Go ahead. Take it from me. uh, No, but if you got this fish in your hand, how can you tell it's a bluegill? What does it look like? And in particular, there's what, how many species of sunfish are there now? Somewhere around 12 or 13? How can you distinguish it from your green sunfish, your red breast sunfish, others that people might find? Well, vertical bars, deep body. The males get that bright orange chest, especially when they're going to spawn. But you, more typically, they'll be kind of yellow. Of course, they've got, we call it a blue gill because of the opercular flap, which is dark to navy blue, but very prominent on a bluegill. A lot of times you get that turquoise coming up the lower part of the gill cover together with that yellow or orange on the breast or chest, whatever you want to call it. They're pretty distinctive, but at times they're less colorful and can resemble some of the other species. But a classic bluegill is pretty easy to tell from those things. There's several states with state records over three pounds, which I just can't imagine. Maybe even over four. I don't know. But the biggest one I've ever caught was just about a pound, and it was amazing. Some of the smaller, more juvenile bluegill, too, to add to that, oftentimes we have anglers confuse them with red ear sunfish. One of the key telltale characteristics is to look at the posterior edge of the dorsal fin, where basically the spines lead to soft rays. On a bluegill, Towards in the soft ray section at the back of the dorsal fin, you'll see almost like a little black, dark colored blotch. And that's one of the telltale characteristics. I always kind of flip up that dorsal fin and look for that blotch, especially on juvenile fish for the ID purposes. That black spot on the dorsal fin and then those railroad kind of vertical bars. I was out with an undergraduate fisheries class and down here, it's not the red ears, but the red breasts that get confused with them. And so those are my go-to characteristics. So when I was a kid, I grew up in Virginia as well, and I would fish for sunfish. I guess I wasn't aware of the different species kind of in this category, but I know this is the genus Lepomus. And yeah, just kind of in terms of shape, I know we've talked about the color and the banding, but these guys do have a pretty cool kind of round, flattened shape as well. Could either of you guys speak to that? You know, their scientific name, Lepomus macrochirus. The macrochirus is the large hand, which... That's what you want to catch, a fish that's shaped like a great big hand. Most of these sunfish have that kind of shape, that deep-bodied shape that protects them from predation as they get bigger. You need a great big mouth on a predator to swallow those things, especially when they extend their spiny little dorsal and anal fins. 
just a unique combination. You can recognize the silhouette or the outline of a classic bluegill without any colors there. Very cool little fish. We're doing this show kind of for the people who are interested in fish but might not know where to start. What kind of resources, like if someone's trying to find a spot to go fishing, are available on kind of state lands, both in Virginia and just generally speaking for you, Alex? Here in Virginia, if you just hop on our website, it's basically dwr.virginia.gov. There's a fishing section that you can get to, and then you can ultimately look at a list of water bodies throughout the state. And you can look by county. You can look at whether you want to look at a river or a lake. Wherever state you live in, hop on your local state fish and wildlife website and look at those kind of local opportunities. Kind of to dovetail off a guy's question, if I'm kind of starting at square one, I've never been fishing before, I need to set myself up with the rod, lures, any of the equipment I need to catch one of these fish, what should I get started with as a real basic setup? Really, the best thing about these fish is you don't have to get into the weeds. You walk into any tackle shop as a new angler, and it's easy to get overwhelmed. You walk down the aisles, and there's a 50-yard long aisle full of crankbaits, and your head just starts spinning. I went into a Walmart and just split shot hooks, a tin of worms or some of these small, I like the little trout magnet jigs. And I was able to put from scratch nothing all together for $25 with an open space spinning reel and everything. Fishing doesn't have to be an expensive activity if you don't want it to be. With bluegill, you can keep it really basic. Six and a half foot spinning rod with a closed faced reel and typically six or four pound test line is going to be just fine. And then you can get bait holder hooks, typically size eight or size six is good. And then basically bobbers and a split shot. And you can do a lot of applicable fishing with just that basic setup there. When you want to get into artificials, there are a lot of different types of artificial lures that you can throw for them as well. But for beginner anglers, fishing with bait is the best way to ensure success. And that'd be like a worm or some. Yeah. Red wiggler. One of the biggest mistakes that I see beginner anglers do is they'll take an entire red wiggler or an entire night crawler and they'll put it on the hook and you're just going to get picked clean. Really, you don't need the whole worm. Just portions of the worm is going to be just fine. And I like to kind of weave it onto the hook, but those bait holder hooks are so nice because they've got some of those smaller barbs on the shank of the hook that kind of keep the worm in place. Wax worms are really popular too. Some people use crickets digging for worms in the backyard, all that kind of stuff will work. Yeah. Don't get too fancy. Don't get overwhelmed. Start with live bait. They are a blast to catch on artificials though. You get a little more comfortable, little tiny spinners, little MEP spinners. My favorite for when I'd find a little bigger bluegill called a beetle spin, a little spinner bait with a little plastic body on it. Oh man, I caught a lot of bluegills on those things over the years. Tiny little minnow baits or just a simple twister tail and a lightweight 16th ounce uh, jig head, something like that. The white grub is classic. Some folks will use miniature uh, jerk baits, like real little itty bitty, like two, two and a half inch twitch baits. So you you can get creative with it. My ultimate Hands down, favorite way to catch bluegill, though, is with a fly rod. If you're interested in getting into fly fishing, it's a great fish to kind of get started with. And with small popping bugs on the surface, you can have so much fun casting little poppers along the edges of lily pads or in flats and kind of twitching them 
back. He gets some really fun, explosive surface takes, particularly in the early morning hours or the evening hours. So what about Tankara? You talk about fishing these guys on ultralight fly rods. Have you ever tried them on Tankara? Yeah, Tankara is another really good opportunity. And for those that don't know, Tankara is a telescoping fly rod that actually doesn't have a reel on it. It's great if you're just trying to go for a walk through the park. You can pull it out of your backpack, basically expand it out. And with bluegill, it's perfect because you can just dip and dap your way down the bank with a little popping bug or a little nymph or a little leech imitation. And anytime you see a drop off or some structure, you can plop your fly in and kind of move along the bank. It's easy to pack in and pack out. That's cool. I was just down at a kid's fishing event, sort of a little bit south of Macon. They brought out all these football players from the local high school that were just kind of like a leadership retreat. And they had them fishing on this guy's property as a well-managed kind of bluegill and bass kind of pond like you're used to. And I brought my fly rod and I handed it to one of those guys. I didn't have any poppers with me, but I was using just a dry dropper rig with a foam hopper and then just putting little trout nymphs below it. And he had a blast catching fish. Never held the fly rod in his life, but was just picking them up. That's how I learned to fly fish too, was out in Iowa farm ponds throwing those poppers. And, and Yeah, I was going to say the subsurface stuff too. You can put on a little nymph, twitch it around a little bead head and catch them. You can put on a little woolly bugger or a woolly worm and kind of just light strip it, a little leech imitation, small ones, like size sixes, eights, tens. And you can have a ton of fun doing that. And then a lot of times I'll use a lot of the foam sort of trout patterns too, like you were talking about. A little beetle, size eight or 10 beetle with rubber legs, absolutely killer. Some of those small foam cricket patterns or little grasshopper patterns, particularly in the summer, if, especially if you're on a farm pond where someone's been mowing the lawn, stuff's getting kicked around. Oh, it can be a ton of it. A little inchworm, a little green San Juan worm, pass it out, twitch it around. It's a ball. They're just fun to catch and they pull, they fight really hard. And I think yep. they use that broad body to kind of get down into the water column with that tail and they'll kick that tail and they'll turn. They're powerful little fish. You're going to have a good time. So we're talking kind of summertime right now, but Sam, I'm interested from a wintertime perspective, you fish for these in the winter in your neck of the woods and kind of any tips from either of you in terms of best times of year to fish for these fish? Yeah, as far as winter goes, bluegill are one of the more reliable species, just like they are in summer. You know, they're not as active, but they do continue to feed and a good bluegill lake will grow in its own little city on top of the ice Mm -hmm. in the Dakotas, Minnesota, Mm -hmm. especially. They're very active. They're kind of a midwater fish, so you can get them up off the bottom. People who use cameras and sonar and all of that type of stuff have a great time washing bluegills. They're pretty easy to catch during the winter. A lot of people will use wax worms in this part of the country as far as live bait goes. But, you know, you can use many of the small things we just described. Maybe size it down in the winter um, in general, but certainly a very popular ice fishing target in this area. And another nice thing about them is They have great eyesight. They're very visual fish, so they are active all day long. You don't have to be there at sunrise. It's not walleye fishing. Uh, Here in Virginia, one of the neat times to be out fishing for bluegill or even just to be out walking around a lake or a pond is kind of late spring into early summer. We see these fish starting to get ready to go through their spawning motions when water temperatures get to be in that like 70 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit range. These fish are really cool. They're a benthic spawning fish. So they spawn down in the substrate. And with their reproductive strategy, the males will actually carve out or fan out a bowl-shaped or dish-shaped 
depression, typically in soft gravel or even a little bit of mud, they'll basically be paired up and they'll spawn. And then the males will defend their, their nest for a little while, which is pretty cool. And sometimes they spawn in colonies and you'll be walking along the bank with a pair of polarized sunglasses. And it almost looks like honeycomb, like um, Mm. structures along the bank. And it's just bluegill bed after bluegill bed after bluegill bed. And all the males are defending their bed versus all the other beds. It's actually pretty comical. You can see they're all, they're chasing each other around. Yeah, there's a lot of drama around a bluegill <laughs> nesting colony. We see that here at our hatchery. We give them a pond. We turn about 20 males and females loose in this pond. It has a nice shallow end with some gravel. And watching those males first try to attract a female, females will hang out around the edges and those males <laughs> rush up to them and go back to the nest and rush up to the female again and I haven't heard it, but it, it's been found. They make a little grunting sound when they do that. Oh, cool. Trying to draw them in. And sometimes in a natural system, you'll have smaller males trying to sneak in when the big male's not watching. When that female comes in and he tries to fertilize the eggs as well, you've got salamanders and dragonfly larvae and other things trying to eat the eggs and the little fry and that male. He stays with those little larval offspring until they're ready to disperse on their own, just Mm -hmm. fighting everything off. And that's why a gravelly area is good. It's ideal. They sweep away that silt off the top. There's lots of little cracks and crevices for those eggs to be in and for those little larval hatchlings to hide out while they have that yolk sac attached to them. They come out of the egg with like a sack lunch. All they have to do is hide. And if there's a little gravel there, and a big, tough dad defending them, they've got a decent shot in a world full of things that want to eat a little baby yeah. bluegill. Pretty tough. What are y'all's <laughs> thoughts on fish in the beds? Because I know a lot of anglers yeah. fall into one or two camps on that and tend to feel pretty strongly one way or the other. Yeah. So a lot of the places that I fish for bluegill are places where they're not native anyway. Um, I personally don't have any qualms with it when I'm fishing for them in small impoundments where Basically, it's an artificial system anyway. It's great, and it, it can provide for some pretty exciting sight fishings. I, I've fished plenty myself as well, and I know you hope your state agencies or your management agencies are taking that into account. In a small farm pond type setting, I know if you're very good at that and you're really harvesting hard, you can take a lot of your large males out pretty quick that way, which can lead to a shift in the population. You know, bluegill are vulnerable to the stunting where instead of a few large fish and a few medium fish and then a good number of little ones, you end up with a million little fish competing with one another. That's what limits are for and those types of things. And one thing about bluegills, their populations come back in a hurry. They're doing well. Yeah. That's because they are so good at reproducing and living everywhere and recovering their populations. So Mm -hmm. go ahead and fish those beds if it's illegal where you're at and have some fun. We oftentimes, depending on the time of the year, we find these fish associated with different types of habitat in different parts of the water column. But bluegill oftentimes will orient to structure, particularly aquatic vegetation. And kind of like we've mentioned, even the adults will have it, but particularly the juveniles will have those vertical bars extending from the dorsal side of the fish to the ventral side of the fish or the underside of the fish. And what a cool natural adaptation that helps them kind of camouflage into their environment. So those vertical bars help them to blend into a lot of the different types of grasses that are associated in the habitat that they're hanging out with. So it's pretty neat adaptation. So if you're new to fishing, you're interested in going for a bluegill in particular, 
We know that fish prefer their own types of habitats. They all have their own kind of niche. But what are some other fish that might be occupying like a similar type area as these fish? And how do you actually like target a bluegill versus some of the other fish that might be in the area, just kind of generally? Well, I kind of like the overlap (laughs) sometimes, but one fish that immediately comes to mind is largemouth bass, a lot of the same habitat, and for good reason. Bluegill, especially young juvenile bluegill, are on the menu for everything from catfish to northern pike, largemouth bass, herons, eagles, ospreys, you name it. And that draws a lot of these predator fish to the same habitats. And I can't count the number of times I'm surprised by a northern pike or a channel catfish or sometimes a big bass when I'm fishing a little spinner for targeting bluegills. And that's one of the things that you know, as an added bonus to fishing for the species makes it fun. There's that unknown, but other than selecting a a certain size of bait, I don't know how you'd try to really target if you wanted to eliminate the bycatch. (laughs) I've definitely been fishing for bluegill with little size 14 flies and had big bass come up and hit those too. so. So don't be surprised if you catch another species while you're trying out these bluegill. That's cool. I'm curious to learn more about your hatchery and why you guys are raising bluegill there and where they're going. We raise about 12 different types of fish here. Bluegill, uh, largemouth bass, black crappie, smallmouth bass, that set of the sunfish family are kind of a accessory fish or a side business for us. They're relatively easy compared to the things we spend a lot of time on, like the American paddlefish, the endangered pallid sturgeon that's hands-on, a very labor-intensive process. Bluegill, we keep a set of roughly 40 broodstock parents that live with us from age two to five or six. And every spring, we put them in their own pond, and they see one another, and they know what they're there for, and they take care of business. By June, the pond is full of little bluegill. We can harvest them at that size if we have someone who wants little bluegill fry, or we can hold them all summer, let them grow natural food. We don't have to feed our bluegill, even though it's very easy to feed train them, but they eat all the inverts. If you have good aquatic vegetation, you're going to have lots of bluegill food, and that's what we have in our ponds. So by the fall, we'll have a bunch of three, four-inch bluegill that we can send out. Typically, the fish we stock out of Gavin's Point National Fish Hatchery, the bluegill, go to our tribal partners. And in South Dakota in particular, we have a lot of tribes with land in the rougher country that's perfect for impoundments, farm pond type things, which are great for bluegill and bass. And most of our bluegill are provided to them. Very cool. That's cool. Sam, do you have any tips if somebody catches one of these fish and wants to get a really good photograph? I know you you take some beautiful photographs that are on your Flickr page and stuff. And I'm just curious if you have any general tips about taking good photos of fish or these fish in particular. For bluegill in particular, right in the hand with the sunshine on it. If you wanted to focus on the fish that you just caught and you're not worried about having yourself in the photo, I've seen a lot of good ones with that or beside the fishing rod or reel or in the hand with the fishing reel, especially a fly reel or something. But with kids, get them to hold that fish up near their face Mm -hmm. and get your camera down at eye level. So all 
three things are the same level, the face, the fish, and the camera. And that will instantly improve your photos of a kid showing off their trophy fish. Do you have any tips if people actually bring one of those little kind of handheld, I forget what they're called, it's not an aquarium, but like a little viewer for fish, any tips on photographing them actually in water? Yeah, you could do that out in the open. You would want to kind of get the sun behind you and drop down the camera lower than your little aquarium so that the sky is the background. So get a little lower, get the sky behind it, sun hitting that fish. That would be kind of neat. Okay, you got the fish. It's alive. What do we do? And I'd like to hear more about, like, say you want to eat it, kind of what is your process from getting it from the lake or from the stream to your table? A lot of folks will put them on stringers, and it's a classic fish that you see at a fish fry. I've seen folks where they'll basically gut the fish, clean the fish, and cook them whole on the grill or in a pan. That's easy enough. I've even seen folks that eat the tail fin like a chip. It's a perfect one for a fish fry. Yeah, I I like to fillet the bigger ones, maybe eight inches or more. But a smaller one, I would just scale it using the back of a fillet knife, going kind of against the grain, just rubbing it very quickly on the fish. The scales come off easy, slit the belly open, take out the guts and things. And yeah, bread that whole thing up and throw it in a hot skillet. That, that has that kind of classic look too, right? When the tail's on there and all crisp, like Alex said. They're delicious. I miss them up here. Yes. Yeah. Making me hungry. I know, right? Awesome. All right. Well, thank you too very much. Appreciate this it. was a very fun conversation and hopefully folks get out and go fishing this next week. Just get out there. Bluegill, highly underrated, not just for first time anglers, but if you key in on trying to target the big ones, it's a lot of fun. You know, I know we got a lot of real fish geeks who listen to this show and might be thinking, ah, bluegill, I know that one. Send this one out to all your people that you're trying to get interested in fish or folks who have young kids who are looking for activities, ways to get them outside this summer. So I want to see this episode spread far and wide. I want it to be our most listened to episode. So please do that, fans. Call to action. All right, get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the bluegill and the sunfishes. Awesome. awesome. I'll catch you guys later. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.